we enjoy good meals at our house most evenings, and we affectionately refer to my wife's cooking as she likes to cook tasty meals. There's a little joke behind that, but she serves tasty meals. But she uh, she takes a break from tasty meals once in a while, and on Sunday nights routinely we have peanuts and popcorn. In fact, I love the Sunday uh, Dan Billen was invited to dinner at our house. And Dan excitedly invited his brother Sam, knowing my wife was a good cook, they'd come over and enjoy this great home-cooked meal. And Kathy says, well, you know we have popcorn on Sunday. And Dan goes, yeah, yeah, right, right. So they showed up on a Sunday evening for dinner. And they walked in, and Sam walks in with them, and and they look at the table, and there's popcorn. (laughs) And, boy, the... The visible drop of the countenance, especially on Sam's face, they still thought it was a joke, and it wasn't. It really was. Peanuts and popcorn, cheese and crackers, maybe a little apple or something thrown in. So anyway, anyway, besides the normal tasty meals, once in a while you get peanuts and popcorn. And what I'm going to give you this morning is peanuts and popcorn. (laughs) I like to serve tasty meals too, but I confess uh, this week and... uh, this weekend, I'm not only running on less than all my cylinders, but uh, time and energy, my preparation was not what I would like. So the passage we'll be in is great, but I'm going to stumble through it a little bit. You bear with me, and I think we'll still get something worth having out of it. By way of introduction, too, there's an old movie, an old Disney movie, another old Disney movie as an illustration here called In Search of the Castaways. How many here have seen it? It's an old Haley Mills one. Okay, probably from the 50s or 60s. Anyway, uh, in this movie, two children have lost their father because he's a captain of a ship that's been hijacked and he's been taken prisoner. And and Maurice Chevalier, a fairly well-known actor from France in the past, he's this character who comes up to the kids because he's found a message in a bottle from their father saying where he's stranded and what's going on and they need to be rescued. And so... This starts a series of events where the kids employ the owner of the steamship line that their dad served, and and they start a series of misadventures as they're searching for their father. Eventually, they find the island the father's on, and and they meet this character on the island, and his name is Old Bill Gay. And if you've seen the movie, you know what a character he is. He's uh, he's dressed in rags. And he's got long, scraggly hair and a long, scraggly beard. He looks somewhat emaciated. He's real thin. And he cackles when he laughs. And he puts his finger to his nose and he says, I be smart. And when he says that, you know, maybe he's not smart. You know, maybe he's exactly the opposite of that. So You're not sure what to make of Bill. How, how in tune to reality is he or how far checked out is he? We're just not sure. But as the story develops, you realize old Bill is smarter than he looks because it's by old Bill's wise preparations and it's by his assessment of the way things really are that he's able to rescue, to deliver, to help escape everyone who's been taken captive. So Bill Gay doesn't look like the brightest bulb, but in the end, in the story, he really is. He's one of the sharpest tacks in the box. And we looked at uh, tacks or boxes or something like that last week in John 9. You remember the story about the blind man and the disciples say, is he blind because he sinned or his parents? And Jesus says it's not about sin. And this whole passage is one of questions and about do we know something or do we not know something? 
And in this kind of confused morass of interaction between the blind man and the Pharisees and the parents and the crowds, the blind man, the one who we don't think of normally as being the sharpest tack, he ends up being the one who speaks sober words of truth, just like old Bill Gay. The blind man is the one in the end who really sees. And that brings us to verse 35. We're going to close out the story this morning. But if you remember, this interchange between he and the Pharisees gets a little lively because they want to say Jesus is a sinner. And, you know, he says, well, I'm not so sure. You know, we know a few things, which we'll rehearse here in a minute. But they think he's an upstart and he's kind of mocking them and they kick him out. Verse 34 ended that part of the story with they put him out. Verse 35, we're picking up in this morning, John 9. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You've both seen him, and he's the one who's talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. We're going to stop there for a moment. This phrase, put out. If you go back in the story, you remember the parents are careful what they say and don't say because they're afraid they will be put out of the synagogue. So at verse 34 when it says they put him out, we're probably meant to understand he wasn't just kicked out of the discussion. He is kicked out of the synagogue and or the temple. They're going to forbid him from participation. This would be like being disfellowshipped from a church today. He was disfellowshipped. He was kicked out by the Pharisees simply because he bore witness or he told what he knew to be true about his blindness and his sight how he got it, and who gave it to him. He was kicked out. And after he's kicked out, I love this simple phrase, verse 35, it says, finding him, Jesus says. This guy Jesus had healed gets kicked out because he bears witness to Christ. So Jesus apparently goes looking for him. He wouldn't have found him if he hadn't looked for him. Jesus hears what happens to him on his account, as it were, And he goes looking for him. And remember, this passage is right before John 10, which we call the Good Shepherd Discourse. And you know, we'll get into that later, but the Good Shepherd, he lays down his life for the sheep, and he's the one who goes out and he looks for those lost sheep. That's exactly the picture you have here. This guy's put out by the religious establishment, but Jesus goes looking for him and addresses him and says, Do you believe? Now, before we get into that, you remember last week when we read this, we got the chuckles and the laughs just because of the interchange between this guy and the Pharisees. He's funny and he's a character. One of the ways, though, I think I would describe him is that like Nathaniel in John 1, do you remember when Jesus introduces himself to Nathaniel and he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. And this guy is like Nathaniel. He's a guy who is without guile. Guile's not a word that we use much anymore, but it means to be without cunning or to be without uh, hidden motivations or hidden agendas that you say what you think and you think what you say. It's kind of that uh, there's no duplicity, there's no hypocrisy, there's nothing under the table that you're hiding, but you're speaking things just because that's the way they are. Well, that's exactly what this guy is. He's a guy like Nathaniel who is without guile. He doesn't try and hide anything. He just says it the way he sees it. When Jesus comes up to him, Jesus says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, Well, who is he? And Jesus says, I'm it. 
I am. And he says, I believe. Well, it sounds too simple and too straightforward, but that's, that's because this guy's without hidden agenda and without hidden motives. I think it's legitimate to ask, why does this guy who was blind, why does he believe so readily in Jesus? In this claim, Jesus says that he's the Son of Man. By the way, you remember Son of Man is a term that comes out of Daniel 7. If you ask a Jew, do you believe in the Son of Man, you're asking him, do you believe in the Messiah? Because in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is the term used for God's Messiah in this great heavenly vision. So Jesus says, do you believe in God's Messiah? And he says, yes, and who is he? And, well, I'm it. And when he says, yes, I believe, he is saying, Jesus, I believe you are the promised Messiah of Israel. I believe you're it. So if we say, well, okay, he's without guile, but why does he believe so easily? Two things, he knows what Jesus has done for him, and I think he's as good as his own word. First, he knows his own history, and he knows that he couldn't see. We don't know how old he is, but he's an adult. So he might be in his 20s or 30s, whatever. He's grown. He knows he's been blind all his life, and he knows that this man he's talking to gave him sight. In fact, it's interesting, back in the text we've already read, he says it's never been heard in history that someone has given sight to someone born blind. He knows his own story, and he knows Jesus is the one that came in and gave him sight. But also, listen to what he said back in verses 31 through 33. He says, we know God does not hear sinners. That is, the Pharisees were saying, Jesus is a sinner. He heals on the Sabbath. But this guy says, I don't think so. Why would God heal through a person who's a sinner? Why would he hear the prayer of someone you're saying is a sinner? And then he says in verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This man stated what he believed to be true. So when Jesus comes up and says, I'm the Son of Man, he knows Jesus has healed him, and he said what he believed. If Jesus wasn't from God, he couldn't do this. So I think when Jesus says, I am that Messiah, I'm the promised one, this guy's just true to form. He's true to character, and he believes because there's ample testimony to. Jesus healed him, and he knows that if Jesus weren't sent from God, he couldn't have done it. He couldn't be lying to him now about being the Messiah if God had just heard him and healed the man's blindness. So he's absolutely consistent. Uh, his strength is his simplicity or his lack of guile. This is something that uh, I think you and I could do quite a bit more with. You know, uh, you might find yourself doing this or you might find someone else doing this to you in a conversation. If something's at stake without being said clearly, it may shape the way you interact with someone else or the way they interact with you. Um, recently, there's been a lot of debate about uh, um, evolution and intelligent design. Well, if I have an axe to grind, if I have a point of view, I believe God created or I, or I believe uh, that matter is all, then that may frame the discussion I have with other people or the way I ask questions. Um, if my child uh, broke the cookie jar when they're sneaking the cookies out and they came up and they said, Dad, did, did you really like that old cookie jar? And I'm immediately thinking, now why do they care if I like that old cookie jar? And was it really important that I didn't sneak those cookies out? You know, in other words, <clears throat> a hidden motive may shape their questions or their responses. And when you and I interact with each other sometimes, that's what's going on too. This guy didn't have any of that. 
There was no hidden agenda. There was no hidden motive. So he simply acts consistently with what's going on around him. This is a, uh, this is a positive trait. And by the way, too, to be without guile does not mean to be stupid. Or to be simple does not, uh, is not equated with being ignorant. You know, have you ever seen a person go up to someone who's uh, deaf and they speak louder, as if speaking louder would make this person hear them? Or if they see someone who's blind, they talk to the person next to them instead of the blind person because they infer that the lack of sight means the person is somehow missing intelligence. Do you know what I mean here? That is that if we infer, if we see one condition, we might infer another, and that's not necessarily the way it is. This guy appears to be simple, and in one level he is, but he's not stupid. It's interesting in that the course of the conversation he's had, it's the blind man who states the truth. It's the man who was born blind that sees things the way they really are. And we're meant to understand, back at verse 25, the highlight was, I may not know many things, but this I know. I was blind, and now I see. The man who was without guile, without hidden agenda, he didn't appear to be wise, he wasn't an academic, etc. It didn't mean he was ignorant, though. He was actually shrewd. He was the most seen, intelligent voice in this discussion between the religious leaders and the academics and the crowds and his parents. It's the blind man's voice that is the voice of reason or truth or light. It's the one who acknowledged his blindness that ends up being the one who really sees. So because he was without guile does not mean that he was stupid. To be like him, to not carry around hidden agendas or hidden motives, to be without guile is an absolutely positive thing. Look at verse 38. It says, uh, when Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, he says, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Uh, This guy is stunning to me, both by how quickly he believes, and then by this immediate worship. In Greek, when we, if I say worship to you, you might think of several things, I'm not sure what. But here it means to fall down in front of, to bow down on the ground. So this guy says he believes because he does, and his first response is to fall on the ground in front of Jesus and bow down to him as his superior. And I'm struck... Um, Worship is supposed to follow faith. When we believe, it should lead to worship. Do you remember James says in James 2 that if you say you have faith but you don't have works, what good is it? You know, it it doesn't look like it fits well. It doesn't fit. And when we believe, worship is supposed to be this thing that absolutely naturally follows. Well, again, this guy's simplicity, since he believes who Jesus is, He does the only thing that's consistent and that makes sense. He falls down and he worships him. He doesn't have an ego to protect and maybe being blind, he he probably begged. I think our story said that he had begged. Couldn't earn a living otherwise, you know. This This had, in a sense, liberated him probably from trying to keep up some appearance before others or whatever. So when he realizes who Jesus is, he wastes no time. He just falls down. He doesn't worry what anybody around him is doing or thinking or whatever. He falls down and he worships him. I love this. And I think 
probably for most of us, we're still so tied to our own egos or to our own sense of uh, our own agendas. What do I look like to others? What do other people think of me? How do I think of myself, etc.? That we're boxed in, we're hindered from doing what this guy did, this guileless believer. He fell down and he worshipped. Contrast our formerly blind friend with the rest of this passage, verses 39 through 31. He was blind, now he sees, he believes in Jesus and he worships. Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. There's a, this has to do with the claim versus reality. Those who don't see in verse 39 are those who acknowledge their spiritual blindness and their need, and to them Jesus gives sight or light. So to the person, the person Jesus says, don't see, they're the ones who are spiritually needy and acknowledge it. They're blind. And they say, I'm blind, I'd love to see. The people in verse 39 and verse 41 who see in this comparison are those who actually don't see either, but they say they do. So these are the Pharisees who say they have no need of Christ's light. And do you remember Jesus has said repeatedly, I'm the light of the world? Or do you remember back in John 1 that the world didn't love the light, it didn't overcome the light? And that Jesus says, you don't believe in me because you're of the darkness and the light exposes the darkness? So Jesus says here, when he comes into the world, to those who acknowledge their blindness, their moral need, their poverty, in acknowledging it, they get light, they get their need met. But the ones who say, we see, even though they really don't, their darkness only gets darker. So it's as if the sun rises in the east in the morning, and I'm over here in a dark corner, and I say, I have a flashlight, and that's good enough. I see. And so I say, the sun, I don't need the sun. I see just fine with this little flashlight. And that's the Pharisees. They're in darkness, just like the blind man. They simply won't acknowledge it. So to them, Jesus says, their sin remains because they claim to know. They refuse to humble themselves and gain true sight. Let me move back to Luke 18 for uh, probably the, the best illustration of this. Do you remember Jesus told the story in Luke 18 about two men who went to the temple? And it's a perfect illustration of this. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Or in our story, this could be a blind man. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. I think the phrase is interesting. He's praying to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now just imagine the Pharisee comes to the temple of the holy, omnipotent God and says, gee, aren't I a great guy? 
And in contrast, what's it say? The tax collector standing some distance away was unwilling to lift up even his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the blind man who gets to see. But the Pharisee is the one who claims to see but doesn't, but will not get sight. And you know it's interesting? Look at what Jesus says there. At the end of this passage in Luke 18, he says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you uh, want to learn something, especially in the spiritual realm, you have to be willing to humble yourself to say, I don't know something. When we talk about humility today, I think more often than not, we uh, don't think clearly on this. If you say someone's very humble, you often mean that they don't speak well of themselves or they don't think much of themselves. Of course, that's not the biblical definition of humility. Biblical humility means I understand things as they really are. Biblical humility is I think no more highly of myself than I should and I think no more lowly of myself than I should. I have a right understanding of who I am and what I am in the larger universe around me. So if I'm a human in the temple before God, I say God's holy and just and I'm not. And that's humility. On the other hand, if God's made me a math genius and I write computer software, humility is, I could say, I'm a math genius and I write computer software because that would be the truth. And to state that, knowing who God is and who I am and that everything I have is a gift from God anyway, is not pride per se. It's humility, a right understanding of myself. By the way, if you read the text in... Numbers, I believe it is, a passage in which Moses is being attacked by others says Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. We could say Moses was the humblest man on the face of the earth. And who wrote that? Moses. Moses wrote, I'm the meekest man on the face of the earth. I'm the most humble man on the face of the earth. Uh, Anyway, this humility means that like the blind man, we say to God, I'm blind. Or like the tax collector, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm deficient. If we want to be someone who gets spiritual light or understanding, you've got to start by saying, I don't have it. God is opposed to the proud. If I go to God and say, Lord, this is the way it is. I don't know lots of things, but I know this. I'm deficient. Or I wish I knew something and I don't. Or I acknowledge that in this area of my life, I'm blind. I've got a blind spot. I don't see things as they are or my life's not what it should be. That's the first step to to getting sight. That's the first step to getting light. That's the first step to being healed of your blindness. It's to acknowledge the fact that you're blind. God opposes the proud. You know... Pride has to do, by the way, with not knowing the way things really are. If I exalt myself uh, above what I am or who I am, it's out of touch with reality. Do you see what I mean? If I, uh, back to Daniel, you remember Nebuchadnezzar was this great king who ruled the world, but he thought he did it with his own power. And so 
God said, well, that's not quite the case. And I'm going to help you see the way things really are. And he turns this proud, proud king into a beast. And when he regains his senses after these apparently seven years of being out of his mind, living like an animal, he then says he understands the way things really are. That God's in heaven. He rules as he sees fit on earth. And it says he exalts even the lowliest of men if that's what he chooses to do. So for us, humility and insight or reality or truth or knowledge or understanding, these things go hand in hand. Again, going back to the man without guile, to be without guile or to be morally simple, this just means that you're in the best position to learn, to gain insight, to know the way things really are. So if you find yourself in some area of your life, it's not the way you know it should be or it's not the way you wish it was, this is great because then you can go to God and you can say, I realize I'm deficient here or I realize in this area of my life I'm not what I should be or Lord I acknowledge that I'm blind I don't see the way I should whatever that looks like in your life um, all of us have holes all over you never know uh, from one person to another what what that area of blindness might be but when you see God turning over the rock and you see that dark dark area that's just so you can be liberated that's so you can take that to the Lord and say Lord Here it is, I'm blind, I don't see, and would you take care of this for me? It's good to be in the company of the tax collectors when we say, Lord, this is the way it is. Because then we're in that good company with the blind man. I was blind, and now I see. This is good company to be in. To be without guile, to have no hidden agendas, to say things the way they really are, and related to ourselves, that means acknowledging to God our deficiencies, and asking for his help. And I hope too, when we do that, I hope that we look like this blind man, that when he believed, when he came to understand this truth, who Jesus was, he just turns around and he naturally worships. He bows down in reference to God, and he worships. Let's pray. Lord, most of us are still with Adam and Eve in the garden. We, we know things aren't right. We know we're not what we should be. And we're trying to find some fig leaves to cover up our lack. Lord, I pray that we would be as innocent and as simple as our friend, the formerly unseen blind man, Lord, who now sees the one who states the truth plainly. Father, this morning before you, help us to simply acknowledge our state. Help us to acknowledge those areas of our lives that are hidden in darkness. Or, Lord, the areas of fear or need, whatever that might be. Lord, we know that you're opposed to the proud, that is, those who exalt themselves. But you give grace to the humble. And Lord, we mean to humble ourselves before you to acknowledge that you're God and we're not. We all, James says, sin in many ways. Lord, we know that your son, the Lord Jesus, is the answer to our dilemma. And as we say again this morning, Lord Jesus, that we believe in you. We want to bow before you in worship again and just say thanks and honor you for giving up of yourself so that we could be saved. 
Lord, thanks that like the blind man, you've come into our darkness to bring light and life and that you've searched us out just as certainly as you searched him out. Lord, we're in good company with our blind friend and we ask with him that we could simply say, whatever's going on in our life, we were blind, but now we see. Lord, we give you our dilemmas, our shortcomings. We ask you to make of us in Christ what you mean us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.